Jesus describes the unrighteous man, right, the tax collector, as the one who is made right with God. And he describes the righteous man, the Pharisee, the religious um, leader, as the one who was not, who wasn't made right with God. And this is a reversal of everything that the Jews of that day um, in Jesus' audience believed. It would have been a shameful thing for them to hear and outrageous for them to hear. Uh, this, this is an idea that had no place in Jewish theology as they knew it. In fact, what it ultimately became uh, is another reason to reject Jesus and to want to crucify him because of language like this. Uh, so for Jesus to say that a self-confessed wicked man left the temple grounds justified rather than the self-confessed righteous man um, was to completely overturn the really religious thinking of the day. Um, but that's exactly what Jesus did. And Jesus did this over and over and over um, throughout the Gospels. And I love it. Um, so one of our first questions today needs to be, why does Luke place this parable right here in his inspired recording of the gospel. As he's telling the story of Jesus, why does he decide to put it right here? Um, this isn't, in my opinion, this isn't a parable that's primarily teaching us how to pray, or rather how not to pray. This is a parable about justification. Um, far deeper consequences for misunderstanding the point that Jesus is making here. So why does he put it right here? Uh, well, interestingly enough, Andy touched on this a little bit last week uh, in his sermon, but as Luke's uh, gone through the gospel here, uh, as he's been inspired to record what's happened in the life of Jesus and eventually his death and resurrection and ascension, he's been working up to this one question that's said a lot of different ways, but we see it over and over, and it's this, how do we inherit the kingdom of God, the kingdom of Jesus? How do we get into this kingdom? Uh, how can we be made right with God? How can we be reconciled to God? There's a lot of ways to say it, but it's the same question. Um, how do we get God? That's the biggest and most important question in all of life that any of us um, could ever try to answer. It's really the only question that matters in all of life. How do we get God? How can a person be made right with God? This isn't a new question. Uh, this is a question, in fact, that plagued and haunted uh, the earliest uh, of humanity in the, in the earliest biblical era, all the way back to the book of Job. In the earliest days of the earth, Job um, chapter 9, verse 1, Job was crying out, how can a person be justified before God? He was asking, how can it be done? And, and there's a lot of reasons why this question is not an easy one to answer. Um, it's not easy to answer because we know for certain that no one person, none of us at least, can on our own achieve this righteousness. Uh, any basic understanding of the Old Testament at all leads us to that truth. There's no way that a sinner could be righteous on his own. And we know this because the scriptures say that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Even our best deeds and moralities are at best filthy rags in comparison to the standard of God. And you, and you know this. Um, so the, the dilemma, of course, is if we're sinful, and God demands righteousness, how can a man be made right with God? How can we be justified? But then you look at this parable and you see it. Again, here's these words straight from the mouth of Jesus, verse 14. This one, this man, went down to his house justified. So we know it's possible. 
the single most important issue any of us will ever face. Who's right with God and how? Um, that's the question. And the crazy thing is that the answer is shocking. Um, remember that these Jews that Jesus is addressing, uh, they knew God to be righteous. They knew him to be holy. They knew him to be set apart. They knew that the book of Leviticus said, be holy as I am holy, again and again and again. They knew that. And they understood Job's question, how can a man be justified before God? Uh, that was the, the compelling question and the oldest spiritual dialogue that they had. And Psalm 143 reiterates this truth uh, that was well known from the beginning. So Psalm 143, verse 2, it says, For no one alive is righteous in your sight. None of us are good. You, you may have heard people say, why do bad things happen to good people? They don't. Uh, there are no good people. No one is righteous in God's sight. That's the dilemma. Um, God is absolutely righteous and holy. He says that we must be righteous and holy, be holy as I'm holy, and all our righteousness is filthy rags. It's a big problem. Um, this word justified. So you guys might look at this word if you're a believer today and, and, and you've looked through the book of Romans and you probably say, I understand that word. I know what justified means. Um, and you could probably give me a paragraph or two on how Christ's righteousness was imputed to us through faith in Jesus Christ. And you'd be right if you said that. Uh, but you got to remember something. The, this audience that Jesus is speaking to back in Luke 18, they didn't have the book of Romans. You have to remember that. So what did this word justified mean to them? What did it mean to the original audience? Um, they would have known that to be justified means to be guiltless. It means to be right before the judge, um, which in this case means to be right before God. Uh, the Hebrew word of the Old Testament literally means to accept someone as righteous or to acquit them. To acquit somebody is to clear their name um, so that they can stand before God accepted. And that's exactly what Jesus said about the tax collector. Uh, God accepted him and rejected the Pharisee. That's what's so stunning about this. So how can this happen? Uh, well, the Jewish audience should have known their Old Testament well enough to know that Genesis 15, 6 says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Uh, it was his faith, not his works. They should have known that Paul points out in Romans 4 that he was justified by faith. And they should have known Isaiah 53. Uh, Isaiah's chapter about Jesus. Isaiah 53, my servant, the righteous one, Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, will justify the many. How? Isaiah 53, 11, he will bear their iniquities. They should have known that, and they should have known that the only way that somebody could be righteous with God would be to be perfectly holy, um, because that's what God demands throughout the book of Leviticus. And the only way that could happen is if he imputed his righteousness to us through faith. And the only way he could do that is if there was a suitable sacrifice made, if there was an atonement, uh, somebody to bear the punishment, the just punishment that God's law demanded in place of sinners. So all, my point is all the pieces are there throughout the Old Testament. The audience is without excuse. Uh, at, at the very least, they should have understood this sacrificial system. That's what they go to the temple for. Every time there was a sacrifice, every single day at the temple, a couple of times a day, this was a, a symbol of substitutionary death that the violation of the law required. Um, it's a death. And the way it works is either you die uh, or an innocent substitute dies in your place. That's how it worked. And so all of these sacrifices pointed to the one final 
perfect Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. It's all there in the Old Testament. They had all the knowledge necessary that they needed to be made right with God. However, by the time you get to this parable, by the time you get to the life of Jesus, most of the Jews, especially the elites, the Pharisees, they'd missed it altogether, completely missed it. Um, They didn't understand that the Messiah must suffer and die. They've lost complete sight of the whole sacrificial system. They don't understand Isaiah 53 at all. And they've decided what the rest of the world has decided, that you get to God by being good. That's how you get there. You please God, you satisfy God, you achieve reconciliation with God, you get into his kingdom by being good. Uh, A great majority of the Jews had decided this, uh, and they had it all wrong. So what Jesus does is he uses this clear and simple story to answer really a very simple question. How can a man be justified? What happens with this question, though, inevitably, even today, uh, is it leads to this huge, massive, complex, convoluted conversation. Um, Really, if you look at the world, this question grips us today and causes all sorts of arguments among religious and non-religious people. You might have a conversation with somebody and say, oh, well, if you're you're talking about how to get to God, I mean, that's really complicated because there's, you know, there's a lot of different religions and and some of them have good bits here and and some have good bits here. And, you know, most of them are all kind of saying you should be a good person. And, um, you know, we agree on most things. But, you know, so I think really what we should do is just look at the things that are universal to all religions. That's probably how you get to God. Um, A lot of conversations go like that. And they end with something like, I'm good enough. Um, but the answer isn't complicated, and you know that. It's simple. Uh, either we can be made right before God, or we can't. Um, it's that simple. There's, there's no other options. Either we can achieve righteousness that satisfies what God requires, or we can't. Um, but this is the division of all religions across all of earth. Um, it comes down to two categories. It's either a religion of um, human achievement, or it's the truth. Um, it's a religion of divine accomplishment. Human achievement or divine accomplishment. Every religion that's ever existed in the world, um, except for this true one revealed to us in Scripture, is a religion of human achievement. Um, you get to God by being good, morally good, religiously good, ceremoniously good. And even people who aren't religious, if you meet them on the street uh, or in your workplace, or in my case, on the campus, um, they'll usually say that they're, they're spiritual um, and that they feel like they're too good for God to send them to hell. I encounter this with college students many times a year. Um, students who don't necessarily profess a Christian faith, or some who do, but when you press them on it, what it really comes down to is they, they feel like they're good enough, that there's no way a good God could send them to hell. And they, they begin to compare themselves to murderers and whatever else. Uh, but here's the truth. Um, No matter what the name of the religion is, whether it's a a massive world religion or some um, private kind of religion you've concocted for yourself, um, if it has in it the idea that you get to God by being good, it's a lie. Uh, It's it's the biggest lie that's dominated human history. Um, So we're going to look back at the New Testament to help us understand that further. Uh, In fact, to see this, you only need to look at one place. The words of Jesus in Matthew 5, 48. This is the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus again repeats it. Therefore, you are to be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. 
So here Jesus is reiterating from Leviticus, saying, be holy for I am holy. Um, so the divine standard, the standard of Jesus, the standard of God, absolute perfection. And the Bible says, if you break the law in one place, you've shattered all of it. And, and Jesus went on to say even further, um, if you look after another with lust, you've committed adultery. If you look at somebody and you hate them, you've, what, you've murdered them, right? Jesus took that even further and said, this isn't just an issue of outward sin. This is an issue of the heart. Uh, you have to be as perfect as God, absolute holiness. So if that's the standard, what hope is there for anyone? Um, what hope is there for anyone? If, and that was, the, that was the question that the disciples had too. See, they were confused by this as well. You know that Jesus, after he would give these parables, then he'd kind of retreat with his disciples often and explain to them what was going on. But it took the disciples a long time to get it. Um, and, and if you look just a little bit further down in chapter 18, you see this story of the rich young ruler, right? And, and this, this perplexed the disciples too because this rich young ruler, he comes to Jesus and he says, uh, what do I need to do? And Jesus says, well, you need to keep the law. And he says, oh, I, okay, I've done that. Um, I've kept the law from my youth. I've done all these things. All of them I've kept. And you know what happens. The rich young ruler, he walks away from this conversation with Jesus that started with how do I inherit the kingdom? And he hasn't inherited it. Um, he walks away remaining lost. Um, See, he didn't understand this standard. And, and the disciples, they looked at the conversation and, and they were probably pretty impressed with the guy. You can see by their reaction. Um, they say, well, then who can be saved, Jesus? If not him, who? Who then could be saved? If this Pharisee, who gets elected to be the leader of the synagogue, the ruler, right, isn't in the kingdom, who could ever be saved? He's the standard, isn't he? And Jesus responds by saying this, with men, it is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. So back to our story, what you have in this parable, Pharisee and the tax collector, is, is a division of the only two religions that exist. Remember, this is the religion of human achievement or the religion of divine accomplishment. Um, and the Pharisee, he's self-righteous. He's standing as near as he can to the holy place without touching any of the people that could contaminate him. He seeks no mercy. He seeks no grace. He seeks no forgiveness. He wants no sympathy. He's thankful only that um, he's not unrighteous. So he walks away from the, the temple, remember, the self-exalted one, unjustified. And then you've got the other one, right? The other character is the tax collector. He's sinful. He's outcast. He's the object of contempt. He's guilty, standing far away because he feels so unclean and so unwanted. And he seeks mercy. He desperately needs grace. He's distraught that he's not righteous. And he goes home justified. He's humble, so he ends up being exalted. This is a powerful story uh, of two men, two postures, two prayers, two very different results. We have to see that. Okay, so how is that for an intro? <laughs> what time is it? Um, my notes say wait until they stop laughing and continue. Okay, so here we go. Um, first point, uh, this is a comprehensive audience. I want you to see that. What I mean by a comprehensive audience is that this audience covers 
everybody outside those in the true faith, okay? That's what I mean by comprehensive audience. This story is directed at this audience. See verse 9. Jesus told this parable to, who's the audience? To some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and looked down on everybody else. So there you see the audience. Comprehensive. Everybody who's not included in the true faith in Jesus. Immediately you get this target audience. This is anybody who thinks that they're getting to heaven on their own. Um, but who, who in particular did he have in mind, do you think? Who are the real leaders of this religion in Israel and trusting in yourself that you are righteous? We all know it. It was the Pharisees. Uh, the Pharisees, they were the, the great architects of this system of self-righteousness that dominated Israel. They had the greatest influence on the population because they had power. They had power in the local synagogues. They, they essentially ruled cities. Um, and, and a lot of times, they were actually the cities were ruled by their own personal theology, kind of the things that they had decided to be true. Uh, and so the people that ascribed to these Pharisees' teachings also believed that trusting in yourself to become righteous was the way that you gained a place in the kingdom of God. They had led a lot of people astray. Um, now, how in the world could they get to that point from the Old Testament? You remember we looked at it a few minutes ago? We said our best deeds are what? They're filthy rags. Scripture says that. Yet what, what the Pharisees did is they decided to set that aside. And in their pride, they trust in themselves. But you have to hear this. Um, it's not just the Pharisees. It's all the people of all time who have developed any sort of self-styled approach to God in which you believe that you have the power to live a life that satisfies God. That might be you today. These are all of the people in the religion of, again, human achievement. Um, these people listening to Jesus in that day, they were embedded in it. Uh, this is what the Pharisees claimed for themselves. This is what they taught. This is what they advocated for. And this is what the people bought into. And you might remember that one of the leading victims of this lie that self-righteousness can gain you a place in the kingdom for a lot of his life was the Apostle Paul. He gives his own testimony in Philippians 3 in the New Testament. He says, well, if anybody has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. He says, you want to talk about fleshly achievement? You want to talk about how good a man can be in himself? Listen to this. Circumcise the eighth day of the nation of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, the most zealous of all law keepers, so passionate about his religion that he persecuted the church. And then the pinnacle, as to the righteousness which is in the law, I was found blameless. That's what Paul says. See, there wasn't anybody who knew Paul on the outside that could point to anything in his life that was a violation of the law visible to the naked eye. He walked the walk, um, and then some. He lived that life. He trusted in himself that he could be righteous. And a good majority of the Pharisees, Paul obviously not included, never did discover their need uh, for Christ's righteousness apart from their own, up to his death. This greater righteousness that Jesus spoke of in the Sermon on the Mount, um, many of these people, many of the common folk, not just the Pharisees, hadn't come to that discovery, and, and the world today hasn't come to that discovery. Uh, the world, those who are even interested, the world's basically on, on the trail to God of being good. 
Uh, the Pharisees were obnoxiously self-righteous, and that's why you have a further description of them at the end of verse 9. Look down again at your Bibles. Not only did they trust in themselves that they were righteous, but they viewed others, namely the tax collectors and the others in that circle, with contempt. They viewed others with contempt. And, and contempt, uh, if you do a little word study on that, it's basically, biblically speaking, it's the highest level of insult that you can heap on someone. Uh, we see that in, in Luke 23, 11. This is crazy. Uh, this is the only other time that this specific word, it, it, this specific uh, Greek word for contempt is used in the Gospels. It's once here in chapter 18, and then five chapters later again in Luke 23, 11. Herod, with his soldiers, were tre- treating Jesus with contempt and mocking him, dressed him in a gorgeous robe and sent him back to Pilate to await his fate. They mocked him, they ridiculed him, they sarcastically assaulted him, they treated him with contempt. That's how they treated Jesus um, before they sent him to his death. And that's the only other time you see this word show up in the Gospels. And this is how the Pharisees acted. They looked at anybody below them or outside of their group with contempt. Um, and, and, and what this word literally means, uh, translated from the New Testament Greek, it means the non-existence. So think about that. That's how they viewed Jesus as they went to send him to the cross. And that's how the Pharisees looked at this tax collector in his circle. The non-existence, the ones who don't exist. That's how the pride of the Pharisees clouded their judgment um, of anybody that they deemed lesser than them. Okay, now we have to think about ourselves again for a second. Do we ever look at others with contempt? Um, we're not Pharisees, right? <laughs> But think about those in less esteemed positions. If you walk around Corvallis and you see certain people, do we ever look at others with contempt? It's worth thinking about. Uh, The Pharisees, I think, took this further than we probably ever do. Um, In the eyes of this Pharisee, he couldn't even get near to anybody who was considered to be one of the lowly people. You see that by where they stand. This was an absolutely unthinkable thing for him to do. The, the Pharisee in this parable fits the description. Jesus knew this. That's why he, he paints this picture. Um, he would have held such a low view of the tax collector and his friends that he wouldn't even be in close proximity to him, not even to teach him the law. So continuing on in verse 10, uh, look again at the text. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee was standing and praying like this about himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, greedy, unrighteous, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of everything I get. Okay, we'll stop there for now. So what's the scene here? Two men go up to the temple to pray, right? That happened twice a day. Uh, basically every day, 9 a.m., 3 p.m., morning and evening, the Jews were to go up to the temple and make an animal sacrifice, a blood sacrifice, uh, a symbol of atonement. That was an important thing. Uh, Now, what would happen is the crowd would go up to the steps of the temple at the prescribed time. Uh, Sacrifices would be offered up on the altar. And then following the sacrifices, uh, which would symbolically open the way to God because atonement had now been made, Incense would be burned, symbolizing prayer. Now, because atonement was, has been made, prayers can be offered, so they would pray. And then a priest would give a benediction to the people who were faithful enough to be there that day, and that would 
kind of be the whole thing, twice a day. Um, so when Jesus says they went up to the temple to pray, uh, that would embody probably kind of all those activities that happen when they go up to the temple to worship. Um, so, so Jesus starts this off, he says they went up to pray. My point is this would be a, a familiar scene to this audience. They would understand when he says they went up to pray, they would understand, they'd be able to envision exactly what's happening here. So I'm trying to paint that picture for you as well. Um, so these men, along with the rest of the crowd, they're, they're there because an, an atonement is about to be made for sin. Now some people uh, are going because they, they feel that they need the benefits of the atonement. And others are going up to display themselves. Right? They're looking for a crowd to perform for. Um, this would be a time when all of the people would gather around the altar as the sacrifice was being made, and then after the incense was burned, people would pray. And, and the Pharisee, very familiar to us now, uh, representing the religion of human achievement, uh, and the tax collector, also familiar, um, considered to be one of the low lives of society. Uh, the, the tax collectors, they, they were considered to be such low lives because what they did is, is they extorted money um, from the people in their community. They used intimidation, criminality, whatever, whatever they needed to do uh, to get money uh, for the Romans. Um, they, were, they were constantly surrounded by lowlifes of society because of that, because of their profession. Um, so it wasn't just the profession, but it was also the way they did it. Um, tax collectors were basically hated. Uh, but they're, they're shown, the Pharisee and the tax collector, they're shown going up the temple steps together with the crowd, and then this is important, they get to the top and they separate. So first we see the Pharisee. The Pharisee stood, nothing wrong with that by itself. Um, it's an acceptable way to pray. It's not sinful to stand, uh, but it is sinful to stand in order to be seen by men. Uh, back to the issue of the heart. It's very likely that the Pharisee would take his place in the most visible location and nearest to the holy place that he could get to show his proximity to God, to show how holy he was. Uh, he wants to be wherever God is believed to be to give those of lower esteem, those like the tax collectors, uh, around him a good look at a truly righteous man, somebody who's really got it going on. Um, so he takes his place there. So there's his posture. Um, now let's look at his prayer. And this is an interesting statement. It says, he was praying like this about himself, praying about himself. I looked up a few other translations, uh, and I usually use the, the CSB, but some, some translations say praying to himself. Praying to himself. And, and, and that could have two possible meanings, right? Uh, one could mean he was inaudibly praying, just in his head, in his heart. He wasn't saying it out loud. He was praying to himself. Uh, however, I, I think it's unlikely that's what Jesus is describing. And the reason I say that is because if you look again in, in two verses, the Pharisee refers to himself five times, which is honestly pretty impressive, pretty hard to do. Uh, you have to have short sentences and a lot of first-person pronouns. Uh, this, this is a self-congratulatory prayer. He's parading himself. That's why I think he's saying it out loud. This isn't a prayer to God. Uh, he gives God no praise. He asks nothing from God, no mercy, no grace, no forgiveness, no help. He does refer to God, right? He says, God, because you're supposed to start prayers like that. And <laughs> next thing he says is, I thank you that I'm not like other people. Wow. 
Um, so he's thanking God for what he is on his own. And, and this is where self-righteousness leads us. I'm good enough. God, I thank you that I'm good enough. I'm good enough to have a relationship with you. I'm good enough to be here in your temple. I'm good enough to be standing in this holy place. I'm good enough to stand here so that all the lowlifes can see what a godly man looks like. He says he's not greedy, unrighteous, an adulterer, or even like this tax collector. He compares himself to the people he despises, the lowliest of the people he despises, all those kinds of sin that's associated with tax collectors and their friends. Uh, and by the way, these are the people that Jesus spent time with, remember, um, the tax collectors, their circle of friends. These are the people he came to save. Um, anyway, again, I want, you, I want to point out, see that the Pharisee directs none of his praise toward God, only himself. Uh, but his prayer isn't complete yet in saying what he's not. He also wants to let you know and to let God know and to let everybody else know uh, what he is. He's not only very moral, but he's very religious. And he qualifies this. How religious is he? Verse 12, I fast twice a week. It's impressive, huh? Um, by the way, the Old Testament only prescribed one fast per week, so he's decided to double that. Uh, Leviticus 16.31 calls for one fast, nothing else required. And Jesus actually condemns this sort of behavior specifically. Again, back on the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 6, he said, don't fast like the hypocrites fast in the public streets and on the corners calling attention to yourselves. He's speaking directly to fasting like this, to fasting for self-righteous gain, and then pointing it out. Uh, people putting on external spiritual displays as if this is the mark of real holiness. Um, back to the Pharisee, he goes on to say, I, I give a tenth of everything I get, or a tithe, as your version might say. And that doesn't sound so bad, right? Uh, I pay tithes of all that I get. The Old, the Old Testament law required tithing, that's true. Uh, but the Pharisees, what they would do is, is they'd go beyond the law. The Pharisees, uh, like the one Jesus describes, not only gave what was required, but then some. And here's the important part, the significant part. They made sure everybody knew it. Uh, that's self-righteousness. It's not the right way to do it. Be wary of this. Um, so remember, Jesus is telling this parable to the kinds of people who think they can be good enough to please God, to satisfy God, to achieve righteousness those who think they can be accepted into his kingdom by their own goodness. And then the story starts to get really good when we switch over to the tax collector. He says, but the tax collector. Again, we already said they were the most hated people in Israel. They, they had been cut out from all religious activity, cut out from most social relationships because of what they'd done as traitors to their religion and to their nation. They are, in the eyes of the people, the most defiled farthest from God. Um, they're corrupt, they're swindlers, unjust, unrighteous, surrounded by adulterers and prostitutes. So basically what Jesus is doing, he's very intentional about this, he's portraying the worst of the worst in this parable. The worst sinner that Jesus can think of to get their minds to go to, he says, a tax collector. Um, so let's look at him. First of all, his location. Verse 13, he was standing far off. 
Um, so we talked earlier about how the Pharisee was as close as possible to the holy place as he could get. He's in the inner court, right? He's as close to the location symbolically where the presence of God resides as he can get because in his mind, he belongs there. And then you've got the tax collector. He's far off. He's way off. He's on the outer edge. Why? He knows he doesn't deserve to be in the presence of God. Um, he knows he doesn't even deserve to be in the presence of those who are in the presence of God. He's rejected. He's a traitor. He's a sinner. He's a sinner in his own mind and his own heart, and he knows that. He knows that he has no right to draw near to God. That's humility. Secondly, even more telling than his location, uh, his humility is re revealed in his posture. Verse 13 says, he would not even raise his eyes to heaven. Now remember the Pharisee. He was happy to stand up, looking to God, maybe he had his arms raised, assuming that he'd be acceptable to God. And you've got the tax collector. He won't even lift up his eyes. He's so overwhelmed with guilt. He's overwhelmed with shame, and that shows up in his posture. He knows he's unworthy. He knows he's unjust, dishonest, a cheat, corrupt, immoral, a lawbreaker. He knows it, he feels it, he believes it. Uh, and this is the most important thing. He confesses it. He confesses it to God. And there's not even a hint of pride in him. He feels this weight of his sin and brokenness. His location said it first, he's far off, and, and now his posture has said it. And third, and, and probably most importantly, his behavior shows his humility. His behavior, looking at your text, his behavior is unique, right? You might picture like a gorilla beating on their chest. Uh, the text says he kept striking his chest. So to give you a little context for this, this is uh, one of the ways that, that Jews would pray, not striking their chest, but folding their hands across their chest, right? Uh, to, to fold their hands and to put their eyes down. And this historically was a posture of humility. Um, this was an appropriate way to pray. And, and if you think about it, a lot of us still fold our hands, right? And, and close our eyes to pray. A lot of times that's what we're taught growing up as kids. Sometimes I teach my daughter to do that. So she takes her hands away from whatever she's playing with and will sit still and close her eyes and focus in to pray. But this tax collector, he goes way beyond that. Uh, he does something that's super unusual. He, his hands on his chest, his eyes down, he turns his hands into fist, and he begins to pound his chest rapidly and repeatedly, striking his chest. And in Jewish culture, what this meant, this was a gesture that was used to express the most extreme sorrow you could imagine, the most extreme anguish. We don't see it anywhere in the Old Testament, but there's one other place in the New Testament where this happens, just a few chapters later on. It's at the cross after Jesus has died. Luke 23, verse 48, all the crowds that had gathered for this spectacle, that is the crucifixion of Jesus, when they saw what had taken place, they went home striking their chest. Same language, same word. Extreme anguish. So here you've got this tax collector beating on his chest. And why? Why his chest? Why did they do that? Well, Jesus taught us that it's out of the heart that all evil comes. Matthew 15, 19, and 20. Out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, slanders. 
These are the things which defile men. It's the heart. He understands it. And this man, this tax collector, he understands as well. He understands that it's his own sinfulness that has separated him from God. His location demonstrated it. His posture demonstrates it. And his behavior, striking his chest, demonstrates it. And finally, here it is, the most important part of the parable. He says, God, and he's truly talking to God here, have mercy on me, a sinner. These are words of repentance. The tax collector got it right. Now, at this point, before we go any further, I want to make sure we understand something. The, the Pharisee and the tax collector, they had a lot in common. Um, they, they would have agreed on a lot of things, actually. They, they both understood the Old Testament to be the revelation of God. They were both committed to Judaism. They were both there at the temple in this story. They believed in God of the Old Testament. They believed in God that he was merciful and that he was righteous and that he was holy. They believed in the scriptures. They believed in the religious system that had been revealed in the Old Testament, the system of sacrifice and of priesthood. They believed all this. Um, for them to be at the temple, for Jesus to create this story in this way, that they would both be at the temple, it would mean that they believed those things. Um, Pharisees uh, didn't believe that they'd never committed any sin in their life. The difference is that this Pharisee that Jesus describes, he just believed that he'd earned the right to be forgiven, that it was something that he had done. Isn't God gracious that he allows us the gift of salvation? Um, God doesn't have to do that. It's all grace. Uh, the Pharisee, he thought he had earned forgiveness. He thought that his sins were covered by the atoning sacrifices, and he was sure that he was going to receive the full forgiveness of God, that he was part of the kingdom of God. So he believed in the true God. He believed in the scripture. He believed in sacrifice. He believed in atonement, and he thought that God would forgive him because he earned it, human achievement. And that's the way sinful nature inclines us to think. That's why I keep harping on it today. Um, it isn't that the world is full of people that think that we've never done anything wrong. It's not true. We know we have. It's just that we think we haven't done as much wrong as we have done right. Um, so, so what we can do is we can kind of tip the scales so that we'll be in favor with God. Um, to believe that you've earned it. Huge lie. So the difference between these two main characters, it's obvious, it's repentance. Um, faith is given, it's not earned. We have to see that. Faith is given, it's not earned. And, and I can tell you uh, from years of experience with college students uh, in the Midwest, in Iowa, and now out here in the Pacific Northwest, um, this, this is the message we as believers have to communicate. Jesus Christ crucified, resurrected, freely offering the gift of salvation. Nothing we can earn. The gift of salvation. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And you'll find a lot of people who believe things that are biblical, but the issue comes down to whether or not will we repent as a true, genuine act. Um, it's a love for God and a dependence on God that breeds true repentance and a continual attitude of humility. That's how we're made right with God. And the defining distinction in this parable is that the Pharisee believes he has nothing to confess, nothing to repent of, that he's earned his place, like the rich young ruler. I've kept everything since my youth. I can't find anything I need to confess or repent of. That's the issue. Um, 
There's no possibility of salvation apart from repentance. Um, And this tax collector, the one Jesus said, went down to his house justified. That's what he understood. Despite his character, despite his sin, what he understood was that he needed to humble himself before God. He needed to repent in order to earn justification, to have justification. Um, So let me close today uh, by talking just a little bit more um, about the realities of being justified in the sight of God, because I really like this stuff. Um, If you're like me, and I know I am, you often struggle uh, with issues of identity. What will people think of me? What does God think of me? Uh, And let me tell you something true that comes straight from Scripture that says everything that you need to know about yourself if you truly repented and put your trust in Jesus as your Savior. This is what Scripture says, Colossians 1, 21 and 22. Once you were alienated and hostile in your minds, expressed in your evil actions, but now Christ has reconciled you by his physical body through his death to present you holy, faultless, and blameless before him. Is that something you've ever thought about? Have you ever thought about this truth that Christ lived his perfect life in your place, and we're we're justified not by, by what we've done, but what Christ has done for us? So if you're a Christian in here today, think about this. When, when God looks at you today, he doesn't see your sin. He doesn't see you for what you did this morning that was against him. When God looks at you, if you've truly repented and put your life in, in, in Jesus' hands, if you're in Christ today, he sees you clothed in the perfect, sinless obedience of Christ. And when he says, this is my son with whom I'm well pleased, he's including you. You're covered by Jesus. It's so significant. It's the most important thing of being justified is to understand that our identity is now hidden in Christ. The extent at which we understand this truth uh, is the extent we'll begin to embrace who we are as sons and daughters of God and live freely in it. Um, following true repentance like that of the tax collector, we're justified and we're clothed in the righteousness of Christ. So if you're here today and you can't say that, but you want to, um, it's as simple as repentance. Humble yourself before God and cry out to him, uh, whether out loud or in your heart, Jesus, I trust in you and I confess that I've sinned against you. Please forgive me of my sin and welcome me as your child. And he won't say no. Um, it's not in his character to say no. And if you don't feel like you can do that right now, but it's, it's something you're interested in and you want to talk to somebody, there's going to be people to pray in the back in a little while. Um, you could also talk to me after the service. You could talk to Davey or any of the elders anytime. Um, we want you today, we want you to be able to leave as the tax collector did. Um, go back to your house justified. Let's pray. Sovereign Lord, um, I pray that you'd humble us. Uh, we, we're totally lost without you. Um, we can't accomplish anything on our own. Lord, we know that, um, that apart from you, uh, we can do nothing. That our 
that our lives can't glorify you and they can't, we can't make our own lives right with you, God. We, we need you. Um, Lord, I pray that you'd help us. Help us to believe that. Help to humble us. Um, we will continue every day to do things that are embarrassing and, and maddening, and we will continue to look at the world and ask questions of why, God, why like that? Um, but Lord, what we need is you. What we need is your help. I pray that you'd focus us in on you, set our eyes on you, not of the things of the world. Humble us before you, God. Um, help us to make you exalted, not us. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.